Yes, good morning, and I do hope that a few of you will make that 8 a.m. service to help us make room. But, you know, on another note, you don't just want the scones, you want the animals before they get grumpy. Because I kind of felt after, after Easter last year, there was a camel out there. I was pretty excited to see the camel. And I think he was a grumpy camel by the end of Easter Sunday morning. So I don't blame him, but you don't want a grumpy camel. You want a happy camel, I know from experience. So um, anyways, I heard too, Pastor Terry uh, might be taking a ride on the camel around the parking lot. Uh, Maybe that was just in a dream that I had. I don't know. But all that to say, it's going to be a fun Sunday morning, going to be a party, and, and also going to have some sacred moments. I really do believe it's, it's one of those days where the Lord has a good track record of changing lives. He changes our lives in ways we don't expect. He changes other people's lives in ways they don't expect. It's an awesome thing to be a part of, um, which is why tonight we are having a prayer and worship night at 6 o'clock. And I would just say, um, as your pastor, it's moments like this it's moments where we just get called to prayer and worship that really, um, that really give us the opportunity to participate in what God is doing. You know, we, we, have the, the, uh, we have the opportunity to stand back and be spectators of what God is doing, or we can be participants in what God is doing. And I'll tell you which one God always prefers. From, from Genesis chapter one to the end of the Bible, God is looking for participants. He's looking for people who wanna do life and eternity with him. He's looking for people who wanna do ministry with him. And the beautiful thing about prayer and worship is every human being can do it. There's not a human being who can't pray and can't worship. And so it's gonna be a powerful time tonight. We're gonna be praying for healing and praying for some other things. And uh, I, I do believe it's, it, the Lord is gonna work. But one of the things that we get to do as the church is pray for our community. Pray for people that aren't here, a part of the family of God, to come and know the grace and the, the joy of Jesus. And so join us tonight, six o'clock. It's gonna be awesome. I'm really excited about it. I love those moments when, when uh, you guys don't have to listen to me preach. You just get to listen to the Holy Spirit speak. But right now, right now you have to listen to me preach. So here, so here we go. I want you to turn to Matthew 21. We're going to read, read in there in a minute. So Bible apps or Bibles, you can turn there, and, and we'll, I'll tell you where in there in just a moment. But here's why we're going to read it, because it's one of, the, one of the stories, one of the accounts in the Gospels of what we call the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is what Palm Sunday is all about, and I know right now today it doesn't feel very palmy, does it? I was like, Lord, couldn't we get some sunny weather for Palm Sunday, and I guess he decided Easter would be a better choice, so we'll take it. It's supposed to be warm next weekend, but all that to say, on Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday wasn't, wasn't called that just because of tropical weather. It was called that, as we'll see in the story, because of a symbolic act of God's people in worship of God, but the triumphal entry was a symbolic act of Jesus notifying everyone who was wondering after three years of powerful ministry in Israel, three years of God in the flesh, in Jesus doing miracles, signs, and wonders, calling people to himself, healing the sick, casting out demons. It was a symbol to all of Israel that Jesus was the king that they'd been waiting for. And so the story you're about to read, everything in this story would have spoken something to a Jew who had studied the Old Testament their entire life. Everything in this story is done for a reason. In fact, there's very few things that Jesus does by accident. Maybe just because he 
knows everything and he's the son of God. He doesn't do a lot of things by accident. And in this story, you'll find um, that every detail has meaning. We're gonna focus in on a couple of them today that the Lord has put on my heart to hone in on. But this day, the, the Palm Sunday day, is a day that believers have celebrated ever since Jesus' death and resurrection. Why? Because it's also a day when Jesus submitted himself to the hardest part of God's plan for his life. It's when Jesus rode in to some glorious prophecies, but he also knew where those prophecies would lead. He rode in like a conquering king, but he also rode in as the humble leader who would lay down his life for his people. And so we celebrate Palm Sunday because it is the beginning of what the church has called Holy Week. Some traditions call it the Passion Week. It's the beginning of the week that ends with Jesus' death and then his resurrection. And so today is a holy day. It's a sacred day, and it all began back a couple thousand years ago in Matthew 21 when this happened. And we'll start in verse 1. You can follow along with me. It says, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Again, a prophetic site here. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This was a one-time strategy. Don't try to apply this lesson in any other way. It only works when Jesus does it. Verse four, this took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. And most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So this is Jesus's triumphal entry. And there's several parts of this story that are symbolic. One, that Jesus rode in from the Mount of Olives. There were prophecies in the Old Testament that said this certain king that the Jews were waiting for, the messianic king, would ride in as a conquering king from the Mount of Olives and would even divide Jerusalem in half to rescue Jerusalem from its enemies and set them free. And so actually several times before in history, kings wanting to be the fulfillment of this prophecy would ride in from the Mount of Olives and say, I'm the one, I'm a big deal. And maybe because they won a battle or they were hoping to win a battle or whatever, they wanted people to associate them with what the Old Testament had said God was going to send. Now unfortunately, all of those kings at some point or another were defeated. They didn't have lasting victories. They didn't end up being the champion that Israel was waiting for. But Jesus rides in from the Mount of Olives, and people, when they see him riding in with all of his followers, they start to think, oh, oh, that's, check that box, that's one of the Messiah boxes. 
And then he rides in, and what does he send his disciples to do? He says, hey, I need you to go find, there's over here in this town, there's going to be a baby donkey. Bring me the baby donkey, I'm going to ride the baby donkey. Why? Because Isaiah had prophesied that the humility of the true Messiah would be demonstrated and that he didn't ride in on a chariot like many conquering kings. He didn't ride in on a war stallion like many conquering kings. He would ride in on the most basic work animal, the most basic animal you could ride, a donkey, but not just any donkey, a baby donkey, a juvenile donkey. In fact, it says they brought the the mom donkey and the baby donkey, but he rode the baby donkey, not the mom donkey, right? The mom donkey just needed to lead the baby donkey. And so, again, a prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled, or or from Zechariah is fulfilled. And this prophecy was mentioned in several books of the Old Testament. And all throughout this passage, you see a couple of Psalms quoted here. You see the prophet Zechariah quoted. You see the prophet Isaiah quoted. Because Jesus is fulfilling one page after another, checking one box after another. And people are starting to realize this could be him. This could be the one. And I want to uh, hone in on a specific title here. In fact, the one primary title that is mentioned here is a common one in the book of Matthew and in some of the other gospels. It's the title Son of David. Right, Son of David was one of the, the common Jewish terms, one of the common Jewish nicknames that they gave to the Messiah that they were waiting for. Son of David was, was given to the Messiah because part of the prophecy said that God would send a king in the line of David who would be like David. And there were some things that God really liked about David and there were some things that the people really liked about David. God really liked about David that his heart was truly devoted to God. He wasn't perfect, but his heart was truly devoted and that was demonstrated in the fact that even when David sinned, he would come back to God in repentance. God loved that about David, blessed that in David and unfortunately, that same heart was very rare in the kings of Israel that followed him. But what did the people like about David? The people loved about King David that he was the one king in all of Israel's history who was undefeated. He was the one king who fought a lot of battles and never lost them. He was the king who was known for slaying the giant, right? That was his, his kind of his centerpiece moment where he killed Goliath when nobody else could. And that was when Jesus became a champion of Israel. And that is what the nation of Israel longed for. Because after, after David, a line of kings that seemed to pretty much get worse and worse and worse, led Israel into bondage under nations like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Assyria again, and then the Roman Empire. And so the Jewish people were under oppression for hundreds of years, and so they began to focus more and more on, we need a leader like David who can't be defeated who can conquer enemies way bigger than himself. We need a leader like that. And God prophesied we get a leader, a leader who would be a champion, a leader who would rescue us from the worst things that we face. And so they were looking for that son of David who would be their king and their leader and their champion, who would set them free from their enemies and that they could live in peace. This title, like a lot of titles that we use, represented a hope of rescue, a hope of healing, a hope of freedom from all of the evils in the world. Have you ever 
longed for that? Do you have that inside of you, a hope that all of the evils in the world could be overcome? Some days, especially the more life you live, the more you're like, Lord, is evil going to win? Think about it this way. This title, Son of David, was kind of like having the MVP on your team. You know, MVP almost in any, in any team sport, the, the most vaunted role or title you can get is, is MVP, that you would be the most valuable player. And here's the thing. Uh, my family took my son to a Trailblazers game uh, the other, this, on Friday night for his birthday. He wanted to go see a professional basketball game. He'd never been to one. And we bought these tickets because he wanted to see Damian Lillard play. Now, Damian Lillard is just, he's not the, the, the league MVP, but he's definitely the Trailblazers MVP. He's a great basketball player. He's my son's favorite basketball player. And when Damian Lillard steps on the court, everybody on the court knows anything could happen. He's won games on the buzzer beater. He's taken over games and left people in, in the dust. He's just one of those players that when he steps on the court, what do you think his team believes? They can beat anybody. And so we know what it means to be the most valuable player. Unfortunately, they benched Damian Lillard for an injury the week before, after we'd bought the tickets, and the team did not play like they believed they could win. They played like they knew they were going to lose. And sometimes that's the difference between having the hope of a champion or not. Often, when we have the hope that a champion is going to be on our side, that somebody has our back, we live differently than when we believe, you know, there's only so much we can do, we're eventually gonna lose. Like, we all know how this is gonna end, and it's not gonna end well. Hey, we might as well just enjoy what we can today, because tomorrow's gonna be worse. Right? We live one of two ways. And so Israel was surviving all this by hoping in the son of David. That, that title was their MVP title. They were waiting for their champion to step on the court and change the way everything had been going. And they had watched Jesus for three years, some from a distance, some up close as his followers. They'd watched him cast out demons, Rescue people from from ailments and illnesses that nobody could rescue. Heal the blind, raise the dead. They watched him conquer people's personal enemies time after time. And so far, Jesus had not been defeated. And so as he rode into Jerusalem from that Mount of Olives, the people took up these prophetic chants. They said, praise God, the Son of God of David is here. Praise God in highest heavens. He did what he said he would do. He sent us a champion who's gonna set us free from our worst enemies. There was just one problem. The worst enemies in their minds were different than the worst enemies in Jesus's mind, right? The Jews were hoping for Jesus to conquer the Romans, but he had something a little bit different in mind. And let's, let's read the next stage of his triumphal entry because it wasn't what they were expecting. In verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. But the blind and the lame came to him in the temple 
and he healed them. I want to stop there. And notice that Jesus was riding into town and most of the people cheering for him thought, this is the moment when he gathers us in an army and he's about to overthrow the Roman garrison and and he's marching into town and at some point, instead of marching towards the Roman garrison, he took a left up the Temple Mount and they're thinking, Jesus, the Romans are over here. Why are you walking towards the temple? Why are you doing this? And they thought, oh, he wants to go pray to the Father before he conquers the Romans. And he walks into the temple and what does he do he starts kicking over the tables and turning over all these things because there's live animals everywhere in the court why so people could come and and make sacrifices and be right with God people with humble hearts hungry for God came from all over the world at that time hoping that the God of Israel might give them peace in their souls but unfortunately what the religious leaders of Israel did is they turned turned it into a money-making business and when people would come from afar and bring their, their goat for, to, to try to fulfill an Old Testament sacrifice or their, their cow or their whatever to sacrifice, they'd say, oh, 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 those ones aren't good enough. You actually, only the temple animals are good enough. And it was kind of like, kind of like inflation lately in our country. Like, oh yeah, that's going to be four times what it should actually cost you. It's a holy animal. What can I say? I, it ate holy food. It's like organic food, right? It, it's like there's something special about it. You can't taste the difference, tell the difference, but it's four times as expensive. <laughs> and so what they were doing is, is making people's hunger for God into a money laundering situation. They were becoming religious gangsters, profiting off of people's struggles in their soul. And Jesus hated that. He hated that. On the flip side, though, what he did do is after he got rid of the money makers, he brought in the outcasts. He brought in the sick and the leprous and the broken, the people that were told, you have to stay outside the temple courts and pray from there. He brought them in and healed them right in the place where they were told they could never be. So Jesus comes into the temple and he does what God always wanted the son of David to do. See, God understands that our biggest enemies are not evil people in the world. Most of us, if we had to pick what is the biggest problem in the world, it would either be a person, a group of people, a leader in the world, in our country or another country that we've never met, but where we see the effects of their leadership, and we'd say, God, if you could deal with them, the world would be a much better place. And God's like, well, you know, I I see your point, but there's a few other problems that we need to deal with. And we think, oh, we get a little more spiritual, and we're like, oh, God, I get it. It's not any particular human being. It's that devil. That devil sure messes everything up for me. Man, that devil sure causes a lot of problems. And and God's like, you know, you've got a point there. The devil does cause a lot of problems, but there's actually something bigger that we need to deal with. And here's the thing, Jesus did come to be your champion and mine. He did come to drive out your enemies and mine. But do you know that the greatest enemy that we need freedom from is our own sin? It's our sin that gives the devil authority in our lives and in our world. It's our sin that makes us susceptible to the evils of other people affecting us deeply. 
right? It's our pride, our insecurity, our selfishness, our lack of trust in God that makes us susceptible to the evils of the world around us. You know, Jesus wrote into the temple, but here's what he also said. The New Testament teaches us, and the Old Testament prophesied, that every one of us, the, the temple that God really wanted was every one of us. God never intended his presence to be locked in a building. He wanted us to be the carriers of his presence. He wants to reside in us and live through us. He wants us to be agents of his presence and of his healing and restoration that wherever we go, we would be full of his restorative presence and we would bring healing and peace to the world around us. But there's a little bit of a problem. Somebody has hijacked the temple of God for their own profit and it's each one of us. We hijack this life that God has given us and we say, God, this isn't about you. This is all about me. I'm gonna use it for my own profit. I'm gonna use it for my own ability. And Jesus, but the, the first enemy that Jesus wants to conquer, the first enemy that the son of David needs to drive out is he needs to come in to the temple of our hearts and kick over the structures, sometimes religious structures that we have put in place and justified our selfishness. And he says, until I get this selfishness out of here, you will never experience the peace, the shalom, the restorative nature of my presence. The son of David came to conquer our sins and set his people free. And Jesus is still doing that today. He's still doing that today. See, the Jews recognized the champion when he came. They saw all the signs, they checked all the boxes, but they had misread what the champion would do. They had misread who their greatest enemy was. It's always easy to point the finger. And Jesus says, there's something personal we need to deal with first. Now, Jesus often said in his ministry, I'm here first for the Jews. I need to deal first with the people of God before I can deal with the people who are supposed to be gods but don't know me yet. I need to clean up the temple before I can save the Romans from themselves. The Jews were right about Jesus being the champion, they were just wrong about the greatest enemy. And here's the thing about Jesus, Jesus has never been defeated, he can't be defeated, and wherever he comes, he does cleanse and he does heal. You know, many in, in history, many Christians in history have referred to this passage describing this clearing of the temple as the cleansing of the temple. Even in Jesus' conquering, he, he desires to cleanse and restore and heal Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, calls Jesus, calls him Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Do you know that it's by faith that we're saved? So Jesus comes to instill a faith that will save us, rescue us, deliver us, set us free. And then he leads us to perfect that faith until we become who we were always meant to be. And so he did the same. He walks into the temple and cleanses it and then he brings in the broken and he initiates and begins to perfect their faith by healing them, right? The initiation was him riding into Jerusalem. The perfection was the healing in his presence. That's the journey that we are meant to go on individually. Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Do you know, 
A sad thing would be for us to go through a Palm Sunday and read the scripture and remember, oh, that must have been great to see Jesus riding in on that donkey. Oh, I wonder what it would have been like to see Jesus angry, kicking over tables. I mean, Jesus was angry right here. It was like a righteous anger. I mean, you don't just like, you don't, Jesus, it wasn't like, uh, excuse me, could you step back? I need to, I need to give this a little nudge. <laughs> no, Jesus came in guns blazing. Some of the other gospels say he made a whip to drive out the animals. He's like cracking the whip. He's going Indiana Jones on the temple, right? The old Indiana Jones, not the new ones. Sorry. Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. It would be a shame if we just thought about it as a thing that happened in the past and we didn't welcome the champion into our own hearts today. If we didn't welcome the champion to give us victory, and you may not be a leper who's never been allowed into the presence of God, but we all have some sort of sin that has disqualified us. We've all had things said and done to us that if we're not careful, we think they disqualify us. And Jesus comes to say, let me clear out the things that disqualify you and let me restore the things that are broken. And I wanna finish this morning by asking the question, so how do we, how do we share in that victory? How do we share in the victory of Jesus? You know, we see this in the passage that we've read. We see that some people shared in the victory and some people rejected the victory. Some people felt like they needed to conquer Jesus and show who the real champion was and they ended up losing in the end. And other people participated in the victory and shared in all of the glory of what Jesus won. So how do we, how do, we do that? I think it really sums it up in the last couple verses of this passage. In verse 15 and 16 it says, it tells us what the observers did. It says the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law these were the previous champions. These had been the best players on the team until Jesus showed up. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. And they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. The former MVPs are saying, Jesus, are you really gonna let them call you son of David? Are you not gonna correct them right now? Like, don't you think you should reel this thing in a little bit, Jesus? And Jesus had the audacity. The guy who rode in on a colt, kicked over the tables and healed the sick, had the audacity to say, no, all the kids that are cheering right now, they're right. I am him. I'm the one. And it made them mad. In fact, it's interesting that until Jesus kicked over the tables in the temple, all of the adults were cheering. He's the son of David, but do you know who's cheering after Jesus does this socially awkward, volatile moment? Only the kids are still cheering. Right, it's that moment in the, in, the, in the family gathering where all the adults know something went down but none of the kids are aware of it yet. <laughs> so all the adults get quiet. They're like, son of David, boom. Son of David, boom. Oh, what, what is happening right now? But what are the kids? The kids are still caught up. Son of David, 
son of David. And the Pharisees are like, are you going to shut them up or do we need to shut them up? And Jesus is like, hey, all of you so-called experts in the law, didn't you ever read the Bible? This is what's supposed to happen. I'm the one who's supposed to come. I'm the one who's conquering your enemies. Unfortunately, right now, you're being the enemy. Jesus is a conquering king. And don't get me wrong this morning, there will come a time where he will finish off the devil. There will come a time where he will do justice. That's what hell is about, by the way. It's justice on all those who don't repent of doing evil. It's justice on those who have oppressed people and never been held responsible for it. Eventually, God will conquer all human and spiritual evil in the world. But in this season of history, Jesus came to conquer our greatest enemy, and that is sin. And he would, by the end of this week, give his own life to remove every chance sin has to control us. And he would rise from the dead to say, you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. So how do we participate in that victory? First, we don't wanna lean into the extreme of the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are one extreme, the children are the other extreme. The Pharisees were intimidated by a new MVP. They did not want Jesus to be the champion. They wanted to be the champion. They wanted to reap the benefits of being the champion. They resented it. And the first way that we share in Jesus' victory is we have to humble ourselves and remember that you and I are not the champion. He is. You are not the champion of your life. You're not the champion of your story. You are not the champion of your family, of your world. You are not the champion. You are meant to be a warrior, you're meant to be a leader. You're meant to exercise authority, but you're not the champion. You're meant to play on the team, but you're not the MVP. Jesus is the champion. And the greatest traps that we get lured into are when we start to think that we are the star of the show. And the enemy loves to stand back and say, yes! You are the star of the show. You keep being the champion. You keep being the champion. Why does the enemy love that? Because he knows when the time comes, we won't remain undefeated. When the pressure is on, he knows exactly how to win this one. But when we, in every phase of our life, we say, I'm not the champion, he is. I'm not the champion, he is. I play on his team, I will run his plays, I will call his shots, I will be there for everything that he wants me to be there for, but he is the champion. That's when the devil shuts up. He's like, I can't beat that. I can't defeat that, I can't stop that. I tried to, I tried to kill him and he came back from the dead. Jesus cannot be defeated. So why do we live as if we are the center of our own universe? And friends, I'm saying this to someone who is guilty of this myself. One of the, the most repetitive sins God has to convict me of in my life is pride. There's a reason I get on my knees and worship sometimes. It's to remind myself and to show God that I know I'm not the hero. That he's the hero. He's the champion. 
And the number one way that we share in the victory of God is humbling ourselves. Remember, you're not the champion. Demonstrate you're not the champion. Point to Jesus every chance that you get. That's how he stays the champion, and that's how you and him stay undefeated, right? But the second part is this. The second part we see in the kids. Have you ever noticed that one of the, I think one of the most amazing things in humanity is how much joy a fan gets when their team wins a championship? Isn't that amazing? I mean, I'm, I've done the same thing. Like, we get excited when our team wins. I get excited when my son or daughter in their elementary age teams, when they win, I'm like, yes, we won! Woo! I try to do it culturally appropriately and only do it like in my head, but sometimes I just get too excited. Why do we associate with someone else's victory? It's because we love them, right? And the, how, do we, how do we enjoy the victory as much as they do? We celebrate with them, right? We cheer with them. That's why after somebody wins the Super Bowl, there's all these parties all over. Why? Because they did anything? No. They probably gained 20 pounds while watching people that exercise their bodies every day over the course of the season, right? Because they didn't do anything, but they cheered Now, we might make the mistake of thinking that cheering doesn't do anything, but I've never heard a professional athlete prefer to play an away game over a home game. They always want to play a home game. I've heard many professional athletes attribute the difference in a close victory to, man, our fans got us pumped up. Our fans made us believe. The cheering, the stadium was electric. And we just believed we were going to bring it home. So Jesus has given us a way to participate in a victory that he can only win. Just like those children. It's the ultimate expression of faith. And Jesus is the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. But how do we in faith participate just like those children? In fact, Jesus said many times throughout his teaching that children have the best approach to God. Why? Because children don't analyze They respond simply, it's either fear or faith. It's either fear or trust. And these children responded to Jesus, though they didn't understand all the social dynamics, they didn't understand all the theological dynamics, all they knew is that Jesus was doing good things and they loved it. Jesus is healing sick people. Jesus is kicking over the people that ripped off my dad when he wanted to worship God last week. And they cheered for him. And we are meant to respond in faith The same way we participate and experience the victory of our champion when we celebrate the one who is is the champion. When we celebrate the one who is the champion, that is when we begin to feel like the victory is our own, not just Jesus's. You can believe in your head the victory is Jesus's, but when you celebrate the one who is the champion, you begin to feel like it's an us victory, not just a him victory. When you begin to celebrate the one who is the champion, you begin to feel like, wow, this is, a, this is a me thing too. You're just like those fans that say, look what we did. And Jesus, like some of, the, some of those MVPs out there, says, I just want to thank the fans who were with me all the way. I want to thank the fans who believed in me 
when I was down. I want to thank the fans who were cheering the loudest at the most critical moments of the game. When the game was on the line, I want to thank the fans. And this victory is for them. Right? That's the way Jesus is. He's like, hey guys, this victory is for you. Are you excited about it? This victory is was for you. Do you want it? And how foolish if we sat back, we sat back at, you know, watching the Super Bowl and we're like, Patrick Mahomes, whatever. I could, I could do that. I could, I could do, I, if they would have seen me in high school, just think what I could have done. If I would have gotten the right scouts to show up, Pat, step aside, Patrick Mahomes. That's called foolishness. That's called arrogance without reason, right? But that's how so many of us treat Jesus. Jesus, will you stop trying to control my life? I've got it under control. Jesus, why is Jesus always telling me what to do? I will do with my life what I want to do. Who does Jesus think he is? Trying to get rid of the sin in my life? Like, I'm just trying to do what's best for me. These are ways that we reject the one who's the true champion rather than participate. But when we celebrate the one who is the true champion, his presence is released in our lives. When we celebrate the one who is the champion, we experience the healing and the restoration that those lepers and sick people did. We experience the joy that those children did. You know, those Pharisees, they walked away, they walked away uncomfortable, didn't they? They walked away angry. In fact, you see them, it's mentioned throughout the Gospels that the rest of this week, they were just looking for their opportunity to betray and kill Jesus. What a horrible way to live, thinking that way. But what did the kids live with? We saw the Messiah. We saw Jesus do a miracle. We were there on the front row when Jesus won it all. They celebrated the one who is the champion and their lives were better for it. And so I just want to ask you today, where are you at in that? Have you humbled your life before the champion who comes to conquer your greatest enemies? Have you invited Jesus to come in and he comes as a conquering king, but he comes humbly? Have you invited the humble king to come into your life and to cleanse the temple? Say, Jesus, I don't know which one of these tables is in your way, but you can kick them over if you need to. Jesus, I don't know which one of my habits and hobbies and thought processes is in the way, but I'm guessing you need to kick over a couple things to make room for your presence and your healing. Have you invited Jesus to come be your king? Have you responded to Jesus like these children and just you see the evidence of what Jesus has done and it's pretty good, so you just decide, I'm gonna declare him my champion. He's gonna be my champion. Have you celebrated him without holding back and experienced the overflow of his presence? That's what he has for you. And when we stop trying to be the champion and we celebrate the one who is, you cannot be defeated because you stand with the one who can't be defeated.
That is what Jesus invites us into. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And in a moment, we're going to stand together and we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate the one who is the champion. But can I ask you, whether you're watching online or in traditions or here in the room, can I ask you in this moment to ask those questions of yourself? Have you, have you made Jesus the MVP? Are you excited that he's the son of David? Have you invited him to come and be king? And have you experienced his healing, his restoration, his freedom in a way that makes you want to celebrate him? If you can't say a resounding yes to any of those questions, today is your day. And there's not some perfect religious prayer despite what the Pharisees wanted to charge people for. Jesus wants your authentic response. He wants to help you initiate faith in your life today. And then he wants to walk with you every day as you try to perfect it.